This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm producer Ren Bangert, and this is Darts and Letters. Welcome back to our themed summer programming here on the New Books Network. We're continuing our week on the politics of video games and getting even more existential as we go. Today's episode is hosted by me. It's a story about the origins and evolution of the metaverse, from a cyberpunk literary trope to a corporate selling point. How are the Zuckerbergs of the world building a virtual future? Is it possible to have a democratic virtual society? We will analyze all this and more, and also take a retrospective look at earlier metaverses like Second Life. I hope you enjoy it. We've got one more day of video game themed episodes here on the network. Stay tuned for more themed content. And don't forget, we've got brand new episodes of Darts and Letters launching on the New Books Network starting on September 12th. But for now, Let's enter the metaverse. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Ren Bangert. In 1992, writer Neil Stevenson published the novel Snow Crash. It takes place in a dystopian 21st century world, post-massive economic collapse. The book's protagonist is a hacker, jumping between an apocalyptic version of Los Angeles and a virtual world. A metaverse. Snow Crash is credited with inventing the word metaverse, and since then, that word has grown to hold many meanings. With the light-speed growth of the internet, lines between reality and virtuality blurred, and the metaverse grew beyond science fiction to becoming real, potentially. In fact, by some definitions, we've already built metaverses. If we think of a metaverse as simply a virtual world that we can escape into, away from the struggles of our analog existence, then a lot of us have probably gone meta. If you were into Neopets or World of Warcraft, 
If your kid likes Roblox or Minecraft, or if you were part of the Second Life bubble in the early 2000s, then you have been part of a metaverse experiment. Welcome to the cyberpunk future. Let's highlight Second Life for a moment here. Launched by Linden Labs in 2003, Second Life describes itself as an inclusive haven of self-expression. And for many folks, that's what it was. In Second Life, you create a virtual avatar of yourself, and you can build the life of your dreams. You can meet other people, join communities, even buy virtual land and own virtual property. When it launched, it felt like an optimistic version of virtual reality for its users. But the metaverse described in Snow Crash was not necessarily optimistic. The virtual world still operated under capitalism. So no amount of technological progress changed the fact that it was still dominated by corporate control. And no amount of technological progress meant the metaverse was truly inclusive. And that's still true in today's metaverse. If you can't afford a VR headset, or if you can't fit the requirements to wear one, say, if your anatomy doesn't fit the helmet, if you're disabled or chronically ill or wear glasses, you might not get a ticket to ride. Even Second Life today, to a lot of people, they say if there is no good computer hardware, if there is not good internet connection, then you cannot really enjoy the Second Life experience. The metaverse, they have the goggles, they have the tools that in their hands. And those kind of things are just pile up of money. So yeah, who are they trying to sell? It's not really the public in general, but specific group of people. That's Dr. Sandrine Han. She's a scholar of virtual worlds and an inhabitant of Second Life herself, even to this day. We'll hear more from Sandrine later, but she's hitting on a really important and sinister point here. We live in a world where our data is extremely valuable to companies making their mark in the virtual sphere. The Zuckerbergs of the world want your clicks. And the more of your life that you live online, the more data they can mine. With VR, even your gestures can be tracked. Enter Meta. It's the dream of achieving a virtual utopia, for elite office workers at least. Facebook's Meta experiment boasts of a future of immersive virtual spaces, 3D experiences, and even the ability to jump between digital and physical spaces. Snow Crash is knocking on our doors once again. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. Hey, are you coming? Yeah, just got to find something to wear. Sorry, I'm running late, but you've got to see what we're checking out. There's an artist going around Soho hiding AR pieces for people to find. 3D street art? That's cool. Send that link over so we can all look at it. This is stunning. Wait, it's it's disappearing. This is amazing. Hold on. I'll tip the artist and they'll extend it. Wow. Corporations like Meta or Oculus's Horizons World have made the word metaverse a buzzword recently, even though it's been a concept for decades. 
This version of the metaverse might seem like a shiny technological paradise, but it holds some darker implications for our data, our privacy, our societal divides, and for our concept of community. If corporations and elites can pull the plug on our physical world and jump ship into the metaverse, what hope do we have for changing the systemic issues that we already live with? Today on Darts and Letters, we're exploring the metaverse, its history, its latest iterations, and the implications of a corporatized virtual world. We're talking to award-winning game designer and author, Dr. Ian Bogost, about where the dream of the metaverse comes from and why it's actually pretty bad. I don't think the average person has this dream of escape, actually. The Zuckerberg types do, but the average person, they've got actually kind of richer lives. And to replace those with this kind of like antiseptic, you know, shiny avatar, it's it's just perverted. But first... A Second Life Love Story from Dr. Sindrine Han. All that and more on Darts and Letters after this quick break. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But we're coming back in September. And if you like what you hear now, you'll want to hear that. So why don't you subscribe to our podcast? You can find it by searching Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or going to dartsandletters.ca. Dr. Sandrine Hahn is a scholar of virtual worlds, but that isn't the main reason we wanted to talk to her. She's also a longtime inhabitant of Second Life, She's been spending time there since 2007. Well, I first time heard the metaverse, it was, to me, I think it was a joke. I was really feel like, wow, how can this be a new concept? Because Second Life is 20 years old now. And you introduce that as a new, wow, a new metaverse. Okay, so now we all change our terminology from virtual worlds to metaverse, I guess. Dr. Han even met her husband there. At the time, she lived in Illinois, and he was in Turkey. It's a fairly typical story of two people having a meet-cute and falling in love. I love this, because if I hadn't just told you that we're talking about Second Life... It might take you a little while to realize that this story actually takes place in a virtual world. I was sitting in the bar with my friends and we were chatting and then a person just appeared near me and without saying anything. I just feel this person is rude. So I told, I say, hey, do you want to sit down with us and have a chat with us? He say, sure. And he say, well, you are from Taiwan. I say, yes. How do you know that? Because I was a newbie. And he say, because from your profile, I can see. I say, okay, I'm learning something new again. So <laughs> in Second Life, we have a habit is that if we want to see a person again, and we will be at the same place at the same time the next day. So yeah, day after day, um, we are doing the same thing. Um, and then we will go on different adventures. So <laughs> in Second Life, there are so many beautiful places like uh, the cave with rainbows and the beach and the pyramid. It's just amazing. 
whatever kind of things you can imagine, outer space、uh, under the sea, it's there. At that time, there was no voice chat in Second Life. There was only text chat. So we try to see each other in real. <laughs> so we we have our Skype on one side and then Second Life on another one. Eventually, they took their relationship offline. Sandrine's Second Life boyfriend took a direct flight into her first life. That was a、um, winter holiday, and he took one week holiday and to fly to America to see me. And I was waiting him, and finally he get out, and I was like, "Oh wow, you look a little bit different." But yeah, I didn't say anything because it it doesn't really matter. In second life, more about how we. Know each other from from the heart, I I would say. So we spent a very nice one week together, and、uh, at that time he brought a ring. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was a very interesting one week because yeah, the first time we met in person, and、um, I got a ring, and my mom was asking me, "Did you take it?" I say, "Yeah." <laughs> All right, hold up for a second here. I think a lot of folks, women, non-binary people, anyone really who's listening, might have pricked up their ears at the strange man approaching Sandrine in the bar part of this, because that's an interaction that is often more tense in the real world and can even be dangerous. Dr. Han says that's part of the attraction of Second Life. You can talk to strangers and feel safe. Real life, when you see someone, you don't know their name because we don't have the name tag on top of our head. But in second life, yes, you do have the name.、Um, before you talk to a person, you can get to know the person first. So in that way, to me, it's more like feel safe. I feel like okay, I kind of know you at least from the way that you say who you are, instead of I don't know who you are and then you are just a stranger on the road and、mm, I don't even know how to start the conversation. There's clearly something of a culture difference here. Everyone has visible metadata floating around their avatar for a start. This is what Dr. Han studies. Culture in virtual worlds, especially visual culture. When I first got into Second Life, I was feeling really interesting. I was from Taiwan, and、uh, Taiwan is、um, pretty monoculture. Like everything is Chinese, and we all look the same. <laughs> no one is very special. When I after I went to America, I was in the Midwest. I live in the cornfield. I I'm from Northern Illinois University, and it's a very small town, and it feel like. I am the only one who is different, but in Second Life, I can travel to anywhere I like to see, to know a culture, to learn something. But the more places I go, because my friends also take me to different places, I start to find there are some problems. So, for example, I went to a temple. My friend took me to a temple. He was a turtle at the time. He say, "Yeah, we can change our avatar to anything we like."、Uh, he say, 
hey, uh, let's pray here. I say, what the hell? What, what kind of place is this? The red is not the Chinese red. The green is just not right. There is nothing right here. It's, the shape is kind of like, yes, right, the shape. And he started to pray as a turtle. And all his body movement for praying is just no. It's just a no, no, no for me. I get very confused. And that was kind of my first time to start to think and reconsider about the virtual culture. Because what am I learning? Is that really the things that I would like to learn? Or people just create whatever they like to create. And they don't really, it's more about imagination, more about the creativity. So what's the focus for the people in Second Life? Dr. Han calls this culture, this kind of melding of first life and second life visuals, third culture. The third culture for me is not the majority culture, not the first life culture. But in the real world, we also have a thing called the subcultures. And subculture is very important in our life too. But I think the third culture, it doesn't really belongs to the first one. Uh, it's not really belongs to the subculture because it also includes its own subcultures. So that's why I have a name for that is uh, the third culture. And later on, I make it into not just the third culture, I, I change it into prosumer culture. Prosumer is the uh, producer and consumer in one. So all the social media creators, uh, content creators, we all call them prosumers. And prosumer culture is the, the things that I'm working towards now. Many thanks to Dr. Sandrine Han for sharing her scholarly knowledge on virtual worlds and for telling us some of her personal story, too. On an individual level, virtual worlds can absolutely be a positive, even life-defining experience, like with Dr. Han. But for our entire global society, the picture seems pretty different to me. So let's take on the big societal implications of virtuality in a capitalist world. Take a deep breath. Adjust those VR goggles. We're going in. Dr. Ian Bogost has a whole list of qualifications that made him exactly the person I wanted to talk to you for this show. He's director of the program in film and media studies and professor of computer science and engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. He also created Persuasive Games, an independent game studio. His games satirize and analyze a whole spectrum of societal issues, the Facebookization of the world included. Ian wrote an article for The Atlantic back in October of 2021, simply titled, The Metaverse is Bad. We started our conversation with the big question itself. How do we define what a metaverse actually is? It's the first question to ask, and it's the worst question yeah. because it's so hard to answer. Unfortunately, we have to kind of back into it. And if we start with what does a company like Facebook, which is sort of the main company, Meta, you know, as they've changed their whole branding to reflect this, what do they mean when they say 
metaverse. Let's start with the present. And my short form answer to that is that attention economy companies such as Facebook and Facebook in particular have realized that they're, they're running up against the limits of the material world. They make their money by, by selling ads and it would be much more freeing if instead of having to couple to the material world where people buy, you know, like couches and caulk and all the other things, they could blow it up into the virtual one. And so to get people to occupy more of a virtualized, you know, computerized space gives a company such as Meta a uh, greater leverage on their attention and they, they might get more of it and then they might be able to exploit it for data, for money and so forth. That is certainly not the position that Meta and Zuckerberg are taking toward what the metaverse is. It's In their mind, it's this like, you know, 3D VR successor to the internet where you can do and be anything and collaborate and do all the same stuff that that you once did and even more in an avatar inside of a, a, a virtual world, maybe inside a headset and, and maybe not. So if we like back up from that and we've got to go back decades to do it, it's useful to compare that sort of notion of the metaverse today with where it came from. And where it came from is cyberpunk fiction. Cyberpunk's weird because it's so boring now. It's like so like played out, you know. And and that happened actually kind of fast. Like people, you know, we think about cyberpunk, we first think about like, you know, William Gibson and, and Neuromancer, which was published in '84. And and the themes of, of cyberpunk, this kind of like drug culture plus technology or hacker culture influenced noir science fiction, basically. By the 90s, that was kind of, it wasn't played out exactly, but it it had become a trope. It had become like a familiar style. It wasn't as edgy as it once was. And so by the time a writer named Neil Stevenson wrote a book called Snow Crash, which is where the the word metaverse first appears, he he invents this term, that idea that like the future world is going to be so terrible, so dystopic, usually because of unbridled capitalism, maybe mixed with the catastrophic outcome of global war, people will escape into a virtual world. Usually kind of, again, like this sort of drug culture, you know, thing was always present where you were were sort of taking doses of something to get into it. And there was not necessarily goggles. Sometimes there was sort of like brain implants or whatever, but your sensory apparatus would be overcome. You wouldn't see the terrible world around you. Instead, you'd have this paradise that you could live in instead. So that idea persists in Snow Crash, but for Stevenson, he's already kind of, it's like satirical almost. He's like kind of making jokes about this this trope. And in every case, it was meant to be like all science fiction, a kind of warning, not a prediction and certainly not an aspiration. So one way of answering your question, now that I've rambled about it for a minute, is like the metaverse is this sort of weird concept that got its start in cyberpunk fiction as a, a name for the kind of preposterous impossibility of escaping the terrible material world and got co-opted into a corporate tool for attention and future attention and, and data harvesting. That's the, the most succinct answer I can give you. Yeah, succinct, also ominous. Uh, thank you very much for that answer. I want to talk about Neil Stevenson for a second, but I also have a sort of semantic question that I think is a little interesting. So we talk about the metaverse, capital T, the metaverse. But then there's also this idea of metaverses where, you know, if you look at it as a more of a fragmented thing, many things are metaverses, right? Like um, Second Life back in the day was like a metaverse or even now there's stuff about, you know, Roblox, like the kids game being its own little metaverse. And so 
if we're looking at this comparison of metaverses versus one all-encompassing the metaverse that seems to be what the Zuckerbergs of the world would like, do you think that an all-encompassing virtual world is even remotely within the realm of possibility for our current humanity? Yeah, and there's some conflicts here, you know, like some of this is, is rhetoric rubbing up against reality. You know, when Stevenson chose the name metaverse, the implication as in all of these these kind of cyberpunk visions was like, imagine a world where anything is possible because anything is not possible in your real material world. And that's sort of the fictional notion. And he doesn't have to deal with the implementation because he's writing a novel. The idea that Zuckerberg and others uh, have advanced is a corporate, a private corporate platform, basically. It's kind of like YouTube or something or like Roblox. And... That concept is in some ways more boring and ordinary than the fictional one, but it implies that, yeah, this is going to be owned. You know, there's going to be like interoperability issues. Facebook wants you to be in their metaverse, not in someone else's, because why would that work? And that, that idea of a sort of set of competing online communities, isn't that different from what we've got today where, you know, Facebook wants you on Instagram, but then TikTok wants you on TikTok or YouTube wants you on YouTube. And the, the other, other notion that intersects this, and this is like a whole other you know, kind of can of worms, is this sort of crypto culture idea that, well, if we had these sort of blockchain or, or other technically kind of grounded assets like swords or outfits or, or, or even computer code that's running, then it would be transferable. We could move them between these competing metaverses. And that's an even more fantastic notion atop an already fantastic one. But I, I think that like what you're keying into here is that metaverse implies some sort of collection of imaginable spaces. And in reality, what we end up with are a corporate run platforms. And those things are going to be distinctive from one another, perhaps in certain ways, like Roblox has certain features that are different from what Second Life did. It suggests that the whole idea is broken, right? Like that, that it, it, it sort of undermines itself because you're just saying, yeah, this is just a fancy name for like a VR platform that I'm making that you can make an avatar in. And I think it's worth trusting that sensation. Yeah. Rhetoric versus reality seems like that's a lot of, that comes up for, for many areas of the tech and gaming sphere, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of gaming, I know you, you're you a, a game scholar and you've designed quite a few games that are really interesting social experiences to play. I want to talk briefly, just briefly about gamification, kind of a philosophical question about the line between a game and a virtual world. And if you think that there needs to be gamification inherently in this sort of metaverse setup in order for people to buy in? Or do you think that if we did it well enough and utopian enough, people would actually live virtually without any kind of gamification aspect to it? So uh, there's a, a British writer and designer named Richard Bartle. And Richard Bartle invented a thing called MUD, which was a text-based virtual world that first appeared in the late 1970s. And it's sort of the granddaddy of all of the uh, multiplayer online games and virtual worlds that came subsequently. And Bartle has this, this idea that what distinguishes a, a virtual world from other kinds of software is that a, a virtual world is fundamentally a space. It's a place or a set of places. That makes a lot of sense when you think about it because, you know, when you if you play like EverQuest back in the day, you play World of Warcraft or um, if you hang out in Roblox... Or even 
if you are a YouTuber or you spend a lot of time on YouTube as a user or you hang out on Reddit, there's something spatial and place-oriented about these, these technologies. And some of them are more literal about it. Uh, you know, you go into um, a massively multiplayer online game and there's a, a literal virtual world that you can walk around in and that you can traverse. So placeness, you know, placiness is something that's sort of intrinsic to these, to these ideas. And when you feel like you're in a place, that's a good sign that you are because that's all it really means to be in a place is to feel like you are. When you are in an interesting place in the physical or the, the immaterial world, you kind of know it and it's enough just to be there. You know, when you go to the beach or you're in a, a particularly striking building, your sense of being somewhere is sometimes enough. And no one needs to come in and kind of go, may I give you points for being here or something, which is one of the kind of notions that gamification tries to add. And when we're occupying those spaces with other people, then we tend to find them even more interesting and, and delightful because we can we can share in that in that sense of presence and then we can also carry out activities. That can be enough. And some of the most interesting like VR experiences are sometimes just about being somewhere. You know, like you boot up Grand Theft Auto or something and you don't even have to play the crime game. You can just be like, wow, like this is a like weird, disturbing city and I'm just gonna walk around in it. Like I wish that were what the metaverse was, was wow, like placiness is is really interesting and delightful. And then we spent a couple years stuck in our houses because of COVID. And now we're like really intrigued by the idea of going into back 20 years ago when this idea first got really popular with, you know, uh, MMOGs and, and, and Second Life and so on. There was even an idea that like virtual tourism would become a thing. We were talking about like peak oil back then and that we wouldn't be able to travel internationally. And so you would like you know, use VR or even lower tech systems to, to go other places. And there's a cyclicality to all this. And we forget about it and then we kind of rediscover it and have to talk about it like we are now because we don't realize that we've sort of been through some of these questions before. So in short, in summary, it should be enough to be somewhere. But of course, that doesn't tick the boxes of capital who need you to either drop data, spend money, or trade attention so speaking of capital, this is kind of where I, I have some more questions about, yeah, like structural inequality and all that kind of stuff that can come into the building of a metaverse as we are doing it now, as the Zuckerbergs are doing it now as kind of a corporatized thing. And I want to sort of harken back to the article that you wrote back in October of 2021 that very simply was titled The Metaverse is Bad. Right. Great succinct like that really got it I was like okay I also sort of want to compare that with a line that I have from Neil Stevenson talking about snow crash where he kind of I think was sort of skirting around the, the satire of the book in which he said you know in his imagining originally of the metaverse in snow crash it's not inherently dystopian or utopian but it has the potential to be either and then I guess in his mind humans came in and did the thing and then it became very dystopian, but I thought that was kind of an interesting way to frame that book, considering it's named after a negative aspect of his metaverse. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the, the the even better example of the sort of gloriously positive rendition of a sort of VR netherworld is Ready Player One, which is like pure joy. I mean, it's, it's like trite, you know, but like, oh, like what if I could just fan out on all my favorite pop culture, even though the world is terrible around me. So so yeah, you know, and, and I think, I mean, gosh, what must it be like to be Neil Stevenson where you're like, yeah, like, yeah, I wrote this book, you know, a long time ago. And, um, 
you know, and now this thing happened with an idea from it. And so that's got to be just like a very weird sensation. I mean, from my perspective, as as a reader, he was trying to distinguish himself from a kind of noisy market of cyberpunk fiction and yeah, there was there was you know a kind of ridiculousness to it, which was different from the kind of absurd dark humor of Philip K. Dick. But I mean, remember, we're talking about style in in that case. We're not talking about reality. Like th- those were, were were notional. They weren't like like here's what I think you should build. And like Facebook is not. Um, it's not like they're going okay. Yeah, like I read this novel, Snow Crash. Let's implement that either. They're they're borrowing a concept that that feels contemporary, that feels like it can be inhabited, that feels unoccupied morally in the way that you're sort of characterizing Stevenson's renewed recollection of it. Like, you, you hear, if you hear metaverse, it doesn't sound insidious mm-hmm. as such. Like, the Matrix kind of does. For, pretend you don't know anything about that, that series. If I said, I'm going into the Matrix, you'd be like, I mean, okay, like, th- that's a little Maybe weird. don't. Right, yeah, like, maybe don't, yeah. So I think it was ingenious to pick up this this phrase, metaverse. We also are living in a, a popular culture climate in which we're thinking about, you know, thanks to Marvel and comic books and kind of a franchise culture in general, the idea of multiverses or of kind of alternate timelines and, and that kind of thing that used to be just kind of the nerdy world of comics fans. That became very mainstreamed and they're, they're also picking up on that too. The point I'm trying to make is over the last 15 years, a very broad mass culture has been primed for these sorts of ideas, even if they've never put on a VR helmet or played a, a you know a video game. So let's chat a little bit more about the Zuckerberg, the corporatized metaverses, and how that might affect our virtual spaces as they're coming up. As you wrote in your article, you pulled on a lot of really interesting behavioral practices and systemic practices that are going into how these places are created that rather than making it like a virtual utopia is just perpetuating the issues that we have in analog world and putting them into the computer. So can you tell me a little bit about how metaverses can kind of act as magnifying glasses for IRL systemic inequalities like you see kind of like almost colonialism behavior happening with the way that people move into a virtual space they kind of take whatever they want from it and then they will just kind of dump that and move on to something else once it stops serving them right yeah I mean the thing about the material world is that it it exists and has material constraints and some of those include the fact that it's big and you have to traverse it somehow to get from one place to another i have to move from one physical location to another that requires resources you know such as fossil fuels or some alternative energy source that i can burn once i'm in those places i may find oh wow something kind of terrible happened here either in the immediate past or in the in the distant one and maybe that was caused by longitudinal systemic issues you know you think of redlining as an example of this and what if you could just erase all that? And this is a fundamental idea of this sort of cyberpunk vision that like, what if I could just close my eyes to this stuff, this gross stuff that makes the world bad and imagine that it weren't there. And when you do that by like, oh, like, please don't go to, you know, the mall, don't go to school, don't go to work, don't occupy the streets of your physical community, at least some of the time, instead come into this sanitized, cleansed version of it or you can be whoever you are, or you can be wherever you want. And then from the very get-go, it's an invitation to, to forget about those conditions. But those conditions don't, don't vanish. And you become even more susceptible to perpetuating them 
when you're blinkered to them. We don't need the metaverse for this. You know, like we've, we've created a whole kind of striated culture of technology creators versus the world and they occupy the real material world together in such a perverse way that they, they cease to, the people who actually, you know, the sort of Silicon Valley stereotype, right, that they, they really do begin to lose touch with the way that others live and behave, even when they are forced, at least to some extent, to occupy the same physical space, right? And I'm thinking of something as simple as, well, yeah, like I don't mind the commute if, if Google comes and picks me up in a nice coach bus and I can work or hang or listen to podcasts while I go, right? There's all of that. But it also means that all of the bad habits that were so, at least somewhat like dampened by the material world no longer have those, those controls on them in this, this new virtual one. So if I want to do something, whatever that something is, then it becomes a thing that I'm now giving data money attention to Facebook, to whoever is the owner and host of this universe. And, and you know, like that's been the growth constraint that these companies have, have run up against, right? Like there's still so much stuff you do that Facebook or Google or whoever can't take a piece of. And what if they could get more of that, which is only going to amplify the patterns of carelessness and inequality and all the rest that we've seen from the internet so far. Do you think on this quest for data and maybe on this quest for trust that Facebook or other meta type companies are going to be going on, do you think we could see something happening like a gentrification of older metaverses, like say Second Life? Would you, would you see people buying property and pushing out the old neighborhood in Second Life? I mean, what happened in Second Life is instructive because... It, this has happened before. And there was all these same promises with like, like, like much more trustworthy actors in charge of them from a corporate perspective. Phil Brosdale, who started Linden Lab that made Second Life and, and others, you know, these are friends of mine worked in that like technically interesting. They had the right ideas in mind. They had like at least a much more sort of like level-headed approach to what it would mean to make a virtual world where people could do and make stuff. And, you know, it got perverted, you know, pretty quickly, kind of in a, in a literal sense. And people think of Second Life and they think of like furry yeah, culture or something. That's or like, true. You know, kind of like, like, like sex fetishes. And so, you know, as a fringe or a, even a kind of punk community, it's still occupied. Like people still use Second Life. It's still viable. But as a kind of underworld, you know. And I think that it puts the lie to this idea of interoperability to ask if, if it would be like viable or interesting to to gentrify a second life, because it would certainly be much easier just to replace it. I think what is likely, though, is that whatever you think of those sort of subcultural communities that are occupying spaces uh, like second life, some for good, some for ill, or Roblox, some for good, some for ill, they might get pushed out. You know, there were things about Tumblr or about MySpace that were good that Facebook got rid of because they they took the market. And you could look at that from the perspective of capitalist competition directly, or you could look at it from just the perspective of the kind of muscle that capital allows. But I mean, I think what you're asking is sort of, is there likely to be a kind of kind of strip mining of the existing landscape? And, and I think, yeah, I mean, sure, there, there, there will be. When Meta was Facebook, they, they were happy to slurp up any community, no matter what they were doing, even if it was obviously harmful. And so... I mean, I think if you look at what happened with Facebook groups, which is extremely popular and in many cases very dangerous, all of that replaced all of the sort of smaller online message boards and other kinds of communities that had existed for a long time. That same kind of pattern of platform-owned 
a capacity if we had like some sort of virtual world version of it is is it's at least likely to come to pass if if anything ever ships yeah so if we're trying to imagine a possibility where or reality where we can have a democratically built metaverse and i want to say also that i know you know outside of this like zuckerberg sphere there are people imagining virtual futures that are decolonial and democratic you know there are there are people doing that but they don't have the same depth of platform obviously or the same amount of data available to them as the zuckerbergs of the world um, but if we were trying to imagine like a mainstreamed demographic metaverse do you have any kind of vision for what that might look like if we were to democratically try and create a virtual space that was different the only way to do it the only way to do it, and I don't care if this is in VR, if it's on message boards, if it, it doesn't matter what the technology is, is to downscale it. The problem we have with the, the kind of anti-democratic universe that, that we live in online and off is all about the hyperscale that the big tech companies have imposed on us. And what I mean by that is everything is the same for everyone and reaches everyone on the planet. Now that, that idea, that sort of conquest-driven idea is incompatible with democratic life. This is a really difficult critique to reconcile with the, the values and goals of big technology, either existing or that might arise to replace it because their whole value chain has been built on the idea that I can spend a little bit of time and money making something that not just 1,000 or 10,000, but 10 million or a billion people might use. And that's just not what a human community, that's just not the scale at which human communities operate. So what I mean by downscale is you, like, I mean it in the, the most literal sense. Like you've got to, to reduce those numbers and then you've also got to reduce the amount of time and attention that we demand of people uh, within them. So, you know, if you adopted that value in a metaverse style virtual world, then okay, I mean, it, it's not really doesn't seem to matter to me too much whether it's in you know VR goggles or whether it's on a text-based message board. It's really about knowing who you're interacting with, having a relationship of, of, of uh, like a real relationship that's developed over time of, of, of trust and certainty in them, of, of being able to negotiate and adjust your and other people's behavior within it, to have a discourse but also the capacity to actually engage in change inside that community. And you know, the kinds of answers we're seeing to those questions are like, oh, we'll do it with the blockchain, with, yeah. with DAOs and, and things. It's like, like exactly the opposite of what uh, uh, like a, a real, because those are all about being anonymous and sort of like everyone will be a participant who, who, who wants to. And like, I mean, at the core of them, you kind of go, okay, like I, I get it. But ultimately what a community is, is just not a sort of massively scalable technical apparatus. So yeah, it's possible to, to imagine, but the conditions are so different than the ones that would bring about such spaces, whether they're metaverses or virtual worlds or not, that I don't know how we would think we could like leapfrog the problem with VR goggles. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like it really needs to be people, not numbers. And we're really deep into people being numbers at this point. Ian, thank you so much for this conversation. I have one last kind of silly question for you. If we did manage to build this virtual neighborhood and it was people first and it was the perfect utopian neighborhood, would you go 100% virtual or would you still want to like live outside and have real coffee? No, I mean, I mean, I think what people really want is they want to have meaningful lives. Sometimes you have a really disappointing material life. There's like a, a very boring 
more banal version of the cyberpunk dystopia where it's it's not like the world has been, you know, kind of burned out by hypercapitalism or nuclear war. It's just like, yeah, you know, my neighborhood is just kind of dead or I don't really know people. And so going online gives me access to yeah, a potentially more diverse set of people or maybe more, you know, similarly minded or have who have similar interests and that kind of thing. I don't think the average person has this dream of escape, actually, that the metaverse fiction starts from. I think that, you know, the, the Zuckerberg types do, but the average person, they've got actually kind of richer lives than that. Even if they're bad in certain ways, they're richer. And to replace those with this kind of like antiseptic, you know, shiny avatar world, it's, it's just perverted. That was Dr. Ian Bogost, professor and director of the program in film and media studies and professor of computer science and engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. Check out his article, The Metaverse is Bad in the Atlantic, for more of his metaverse analysis. And find more of his work at bogost.com. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is darts at sightedmedia.ca. Or you can tweet us at darts and letters. I'm Ren Bangert. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our marketing assistant is Ian Soudan. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic design by Dakota Coop. Our regular host and editor is Gordon Kadic. This is a production of Cited Media, backed by academic grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the concept of public intellectualism. This is also part of a wider project about the emerging politics of video games. Housed at UBC with advice from Leonard Naki at the University of Waterloo. We are also backed by our generous patrons. Join us, join them. Go to patreon.com slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>